can turn to Psalm 119 for the reading of God's Word. Continuing through Psalm 119. We'll read verses 49 through 56. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We'll read verses 9 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 22. And following that, I'll read Westminster Shorter Catechism question 24 as we continue on through the offices of Christ. But first, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord Jesus, we will sing your praise now and forevermore. The song which we have begun here on earth will reverberate through the ages. As the truth of who you are professed by faith now will be the same truth apprehended by sight, increasing our praise, and indeed transforming our persons in the twinkling of an eye to be like you. We long for that day to see you, to be like you. But it is something that we enjoy even now as you are presented to the eye of faith, as you are pleased to instruct us by your word and spirit. And so we ask that you'd attend this reading and my preaching with that gracious influence, which you only can give a glimpse of yourself that we might be made now in part, one day in full. This we ask in your name, O Lord. Amen. Is the mic on me or is it on him? on somebody (laughs) you can hear me when it goes out so just don't freak out
mentioned that I despise technology. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 24 asks, How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. The best kings had the best teachers. Alexander had Aristotle. Or all, till we have faces, C.S. Lewis had the fox. Arthur had Merlin. David had Nathan. It was in the best interest of kings, it was in the best interests of kings to assemble in their court, in their hearing, the best learning that the world had to offer. This is what the court of a king was in some respects. You see it in the court of Pharaoh, the court of Nebuchadnezzar. But you also see it with God's people. The institution of the prophets 
in many ways came to fruition hand in hand with the institution of the monarchy. You see prophets thrive, arise, as you see a king arise. <coughs> this is not insignificant. The teacher of God's people was also the teacher of the king. The king was just as in need of instruction as the people were. And that's an excellent starting point for our consideration of the Lord Jesus Christ as the great prophet, as the great teacher. That's what they called him, rabbi, teacher. And they followed him as such. His disciples learned from him, not just in the content that they gleaned from him, but his entire manner of life set before them, much like an apprenticeship. Once upon a time, if you were to learn a craft, you would sit beneath a master. You would appropriate that craft. It's more than of a certain thing. It was the embodiment of the life of doing that thing. The Lord Jesus Christ, gathering unto himself disciples, was the greatest teacher the world has ever known. For he truly declared the word of God, and he himself was the word of God. The passage that we read in Deuteronomy 18 is perhaps the chief passage which prepares God, God's people to anticipate the coming Christ fulfilling the office of prophet. <coughs> Doing those things which God had declared the prophet would do, and this in the supreme and most excellent manner. And so when Peter declares in Acts chapter 3, verses 22, 23, and 24, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not, does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Peter is telling God's people that the promise has been fulfilled. That what God promised to do through his servant Moses, undeniably the greatest of all of God's servants in the household, what he promised to do through Moses, he has done in Jesus Christ, who came not just as another prophet, not just as one who bore God's word, but as the fulfillment of the office of prophet, as the prophet, as the word of God. And so we, as a royal priesthood, we don't exploit that image often, I think, or if we do, we do it wrongheadedly, probably, that we reign with Christ, that we are kings and queens in a matter of speaking. Now, the authority that we wield is refracted through Christ's authority, who came not to be served, but to serve. It is a different type of authority, so don't get geeked out. 
commanding people what to do like some sort of tiny pharaoh. That would undermine the point. (laughs) But as true royalty, children of God, how fitting is it that we have the greatest teacher as our teacher, the greatest prophet as our prophet, instructing us in the very word of God. So we can consider tonight briefly that Christ as our prophet is the final and supreme revelation. Christ as our prophet is God's authoritative revelation. And Christ as our prophet is God's effectual revelation. But before we turn to that, we can briefly consider our need for a teacher. Our need for this great prophet. You can turn any number of places, but... Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, states the matter succinctly. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice that he says, you must no longer walk in this way. Now he's already set forth this sort of living death, this animation in a register of darkness, which was all of our lots apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the famous image in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He picks it back up here and gives a different angle on the same reality. But here he tells us that our former manner was one of futility of mind, was one of darkness, was one of ignorance. We had no true understanding in terms of who God was, in terms of who we were, in terms of what we owed unto him. There was no understanding. There was no light in these regards. We were in need of instruction. But it's not just a bare cognitive instruction. It has a full-bodied reality to it, doesn't it? Just as that walking in your sins and trespasses was no mere one-dimensional reality, but a full-fledged rebellion, a living in sin. So here we see the knowledge and the instruction and the truth that comes to us, of which we are in desperate need takes its place against the backdrop of sin and rebellion, such that we are in need of that discipleship that comes from the hands of this rabbi, who doesn't just teach us about God, but teaches us who he is, what he has called us to do, and leads us forth in the path of light and life and knowledge. We are in need of a teacher. We are in need of a rabbi. And this is what Christ is. And it's not just a matter of flipping on a switch such that we needed it once and need it no longer. 
though, for many people, especially those who drink deeply from the fount of sin and darkness, there is a rather abrupt trajectory change. There is a rather abrupt shift from darkness to the excellencies of his marvelous light. Paul here makes plain, we are vulnerable to ignorance. We are vulnerable to that same futility. And so he exhorts us, you must no longer walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of your minds, implying what? You're going to be tempted to do that. You're going to be tempted to drink of that former ignorance of self-discipleship, of following after different rabbi, the course of this world, underwritten by a far more sinister rabbi, the prince of the power of the air. So the truth is that everybody is a student. Everybody's following some teacher or another. The question is, which teacher? And are you aware of it? One of the choicest blessings about getting an advanced degree is not so much in the knowledge that you obtain, but in realizing how little you know. <laughs> you know what you don't know. And that's a blessing. And perhaps that's the first lesson that Christ teaches us. I remember when I first became a Christian and my brother would put to me this or that theological query, and I didn't even know how to begin to go about answering that question. <laughs> because you don't know what you don't know. And it's not until you know that you know, as it were. So this first indication of Christ's prophetic ministry, or this first application of his ministry, is he opens our eyes to the fact that we don't know, and that we continue to grapple with that cesspool of futility, which is constantly generated by our hearts and our minds, and its multidimensional features in being bound up, not just with thoughts, but with desires and our sinful inclinations. And so our need for a prophet is made plain. Our need for a teacher is made plain, though we feel it differently in different seasons. In The Once and Future King, when Merlin left Arthur for a season, Arthur thought it most unfortunate. He yearned for his teacher. He yearned for his instructor. He found himself against dilemmas that he did not feel he had the capacity to grapple with well, and so he wished Merlin had not left him. We have been provided not with a temporary prophet, and in this way Jesus demonstrates his superiority to all of the former faithful prophets who had temporary tenures, limited by providence, limited by death, the Lord Jesus Christ endures forever. He exercises an eternal ministry, an eternal prophetic office, such that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And this being true of his teaching ministry as well as his blessed presence. And so we can consider first that Jesus is the final word of God. We see this plainly in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You hear the plain contrast there. The long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God revealed his word this way. He spoke through the prophets. That was a true revelation. But there was an understanding, even in the Old Testament, that there was a sort of veil that the prophetic ministry had covering it, as it were. There was a mystery, there was a mystery about it. Frequently it came in riddles that people didn't understand. And so there was an, a difficulty, an impenetrability about it in and of itself, which the Old Testament is aware of. It was true revelation of God, but sometimes it was hard. It was strange. We see that in Micah. He's talking about things that are far away. He's acting strangely, even by our own standards, walking around the Judean countryside naked, declaring that the end of all things was coming. That would have been strange behavior. The prophetic ministry itself is aware that there was a strangeness to it, and part of it was mysterious. But the author of Hebrews is plain. He says it went down that way once upon a time, long ago. True word that it was. Things have changed now. Something different has taken place with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. In these last days, he's saying the same thing that Peter was saying. He's saying Moses looked forward to this day. Samuel and all the prophets looked forward to this day. It was the supreme and final revelation of God coming in the beloved Son. In the Messiah, the anointed one. We'll hear, and I'll rehearse it again, there were anointings attending all three offices in Israel's economy. Prophet, priest, and king. All three of those offices combine and converge in the one figure of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And this we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has spoken with a plainness, with a supremacy, and with a finality, such that we no longer expect any further word. Jesus Christ is the final word regarding God's dealings with men. Judgment, when the Lord Jesus Christ's word are vindicated, as he does that which he said he would do, returning for his bride and exercising the judgment which has been entrusted unto him. We use that phrase, don't we? The final word on the matter. Oftentimes we have to use it in a suspended sense. I don't think that's the final word on the matter. I don't think you're the final word on the matter. Perhaps you've said Maybe arrogantly, probably not, probably sincerely. But we use that to declare it's still an open-ended question. There's still information to be had. It might be a moot point because things haven't been determined yet. The jury's still out. We're still gathering data. The Lord Jesus Christ is the final word on the matter. The jury is in. The data is in. He's it. He's the supreme revelation of the face of God towards sinners. And it says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
I have come not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. This saying is trustworthy. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That's the word. The word that continues to go forth in this blessed day of favor. Gathering the poor, gathering the weak, gathering the wretched, gathering the vile as the good pleasure of the Father. As the delight of our triune God, for therein his glory is on display in riches passing to beggars, enemies made into children. That's the glory of God, that it was accomplished in Jesus Christ dying in our stead, being raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand, this glorious gospel going forth to the ends of the That's the final word until the final word when Christ returns and works wrath on all those who refuse this gracious word we have both those words we know both those words and they are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ there's no further revelation coming that's it that's the truth that's the final word it shapes us because we're not seeking further revelation. We're not seeking further inspiration. This is a distinctive of Reformed theology. The riches of the Spirit's work now comes not in his inspiring new revelation, but in illuminating the revelation that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not expecting new information. We're not expecting new revelation. We're expecting an enrichment in the understanding of the inexhaustible riches that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're expecting the Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds to understand more and more about who he is as set forth as that revelation. What he's doing as set forth by that revelation and what we are to expect, how we are to live. This continues to be that rich blessing of the Spirit's ministry, causing us to understand more and more and more. Not only is Jesus the final word, he's also the authoritative word. You see this plainly in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches, and Matthew closes the account like this, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. I've coined a new term. It's called the Tolstoy Blues. The Tolstoy Blues occur after you read War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and then you're forced to read a lesser novel. And you're confronted with the sad fact that there is really only one master of literature. Everything else is an imposter. This is the Tolstoy blues. That's what they were experiencing at the time, or an analogy. Let's say analogously. They had heard the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you imagine listening to the Sermon on the Mount and then going to your local synagogue and hearing a scribe be like, I don't think this is the same. This is definitely qualitatively different. Even if they couldn't put their finger quite on it, because there is a sense in which it's nebulous, you know there's a weight, there's a gravity, there's a tenor, right? Those are all kind of nebulous. 
You're like, there's something different. Like he, he's not speaking like they speak. He's not teaching like they teach. They feel light. <laughs> this is a truth that's going to abide because God's word abides. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The opinions of man come and go. It's nauseating in, a, in the academy how much work you have to do to understand the opinions of human beings that are going to be obsolete in five years. It's maddening. The opinions of men come and go, flowers, grass, wither, fade. The word of the Lord remains forever. He was there. It's like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And everyone's like, that's going to remain without a shadow of a doubt. No one has ever spoken like this man. He is the authoritative word. So what does that generate for us? Listen to him. That's what the Father declares on the Mount of Transfiguration, isn't it? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. <laughs> How ridiculous it would be not to read Tolstoy. It's right there. How absurd it would be not to heed the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God the Father. The one who spoke like no one has ever spoken. The one who taught as no one had ever taught. The exact image of the visible God. The eternal word become flesh. The one who received the spirit without measure. Listen to him. This is the point that Hebrews goes on to make in chapter 2. when he writes, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared by the Lord. He's marveling. He's like, all right, look, all of these inferior forms of religion, because they became through inferior, they're true, right? It's all true. Same substance. It's all true. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We sit at his feet. We have the full authority of the Son. Saying, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the one who makes him known. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who sits at the right hand of God or in the bosom of God. He has made him known. There's no way to come to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hebrews 2, we need to pay attention to this person. We need to listen to him. Church, listen to him. He's worth hearing. No one has ever spoken as he spoke. No one has ever taught as he taught. True, not just in what he set forth, but also in the fact that he alone can impart knowledge. So we can consider last, Jesus as our prophet is God's effectual word. You can, again, turn to any number of places to get this, but Paul states it clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Merlin expended an inordinate amount of energy trying to teach Arthur. 
He knew he was going to be king. He knew that much was riding on him teaching his pupil well. But we talked about that crossroad in the morning, didn't we? He could teach, but he could not make him learn. Arthur could truly set forth knowledge, but he could not impart knowledge. As the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ can make us drink. He does make us drink. He makes us willing pupils. Not only does he set forth true knowledge, he brings that knowledge efficaciously to hearts and minds formerly enmeshed in darkness. And this is the discharge of his office. The glory of his person is on display in that he doesn't just make knowledge possible. He gives saving knowledge. How wonderful that your salvation, my salvation, does not ride on our intellectual ability. That is good news. For it is frail. It is weak. It is battered about by all manner of desire and passion and mood and circumstance. No, our salvation hangs upon the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ who was anointed by the Spirit, installed in the office of prophet, and faithfully brings to pass true and saving knowledge of God. And this is eternal life. Our prophet distinguishes himself in many ways, not the least of which is that he is the only teacher that can actually generate knowledge in hearts and minds. And so we attend to his ministry. We attend to his ministry, which is ongoing, even now. Isn't that what we sang? The Lord Jesus Christ, by his word, gathers us. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his ministers, continues to instruct us. So we attend these things not as the machinations of men, but as the fulfillment and the faithful discharge of that office to which God appointed him, which he took upon himself, for which he was equipped, both by virtue of who he was as the eternal word and by virtue of the fact that he received the Spirit without measure to declare good news to the poor, by virtue of the appointment and the equipment and the standing in the office, he continues to bring true and saving knowledge of God to your hearts and to mine by his word and his spirit. And if Christ is a faithful teacher, then that means that nothing disqualifies us from learning. For the glory of the teacher is on display in the fact, not that the students understand before his teaching, <laughs> but in the fact that they don't understand and are in need of this teacher. And so the invitation goes out to all and is pressed even more and more upon the hearts of his people. We are in need of this great rabbi. We are in need of this great teacher. We are in need of this great prophet. And he delights to instruct in the way of truth. He delights to impart true and saving knowledge. Come, learn at his feet, because there is nothing more glorious than knowing 
the true and living God. Let's pray. Our great God, your wisdom is infinite, vast, and most excellent. How you have provided for our need in sending forth our great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal to us truly who you are and what you're doing for us and what you call us unto now in a life of faith, discipleship, repentance, trust. How excellent is your name, O Lord. Help us to learn. Help us to take that posture at the feet of Jesus, which is blessedness. For learning from him is wonderful. We ask in his name. Amen. Mm.